One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Team Human is ad-free and supported entirely by teammates like Grooproof, Taylor Green, Diane Markesic, Isidro Lucieux, Joshua Newton, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to get access to our Discord, free links to my paywalled medium pieces, access to the Rushkoff archives, and lots of other team-only perks, including our monthly live Team Human salons. The next one is this Friday, February 17th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard. Thanks for being on Team Human. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a chance to explore and model new modes of interaction, cooperation, sharing, and discovery. We are not alone, not as individual humans, or even as a species. This place is filled with friends with things to teach us. Look around. The world is speaking to us. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, token engineering researcher at the Common Stack and freelance mycopunk Jeff Emmett. Mushrooms are nature's greatest arbitrageur. They see opportunities in unused resources and they learn how to, A, eat them, but the way they eat them is interesting. So when mammals broke off from uh, the fungi kingdom, mammals made a decision to digest food in their body. So we put food in our stomach and our stomach digests it. And all of the value from those nutrients is captured by our body. But mushrooms are very different because they don't put food in their body. They put their body in the food. Jeff will be telling us about some of the wonders of mycelia and why we may all want to start considering ourselves mycopunks. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and fungi. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Well, I finally received one. It was clear as day. A student in one of my courses at Queens College who'd been barely able to construct a written sentence all semester turned in a final paper with 
perfect organization and zero punctuation errors. It was as if someone else had written the paper. And someone else did, but that someone was AI. In previous semesters, I had occasionally encountered papers downloaded from web-based services or simply cut and paste from essays, articles, or even Wikipedia. They were easy enough to find with a simple web search. As if wanting to be caught, some students even turned in papers written by other students from previous semesters of my course. But because I teach at a public college, many of my students are not wealthy enough to hire tutors or the online academic version of task rabbits to write their papers for them. A friend of mine who teaches at an elite high school once challenged a student to answer a few basic questions about such a paper to see if he even understood what was on the page. And the student's parents complained and the teacher was put on suspension for traumatizing the boy. You know, chat GPT, this, uh, if you haven't heard about it, it's basically a, an easy AI you can play with on the web. It levels the playing field, giving students without money to pay for bespoke papers from anonymous grad student gig workers an opportunity to produce and submit essays they haven't written. You just put in what you want. I need a paper on Tennessee Williams, a thousand words long, comparing uh, whatever, uh, Streetcar Named Desire to Canada Hot Tin Roof. And it'll it'll write something, you know, something fine, something kind of Wikipedia sounding. And the, the, the results, you know, they're, they're not what we would normally consider college level. I mean, the, the sentences are clear and the organization of the paper is good. So compared with a lot of the papers I receive, which don't even have basic sentence grammar down, you know, or, or that they're produced with uh, speech to text on an iPhone with no proofreading, these AI produced essays are, are professional by comparison. But, you know, to an experienced essay reader, they all exhibit the telltale signs of synthetic production. The depth of analysis remains exactly constant. There's no aha moments, no incomplete thoughts, no wrestling with ambiguity. It all reads like a Wikipedia article, which I'm guessing is where the AI was trained in the first place. Still, without proof, it's hard to accuse a student of cheating, you know, when we only know that the paper kind of looks and feels like it's been generated by AI. And the AIs are going to certainly get better with time. So what's a teacher to do? I mean, assuming we care uh, that grades matter and that as accrediting institutions, we need to enforce basic academic integrity. There's a few good alternatives. I mean, the first, the easiest one is to use one of the uh, online analytical tools. There's one called Glitter, uh, GLTR, where you can paste a whole bunch of text and it will analyze the text using a different AI and try to figure out how predictable each word is from the one before it. You know, what was the most next predictable word? Because AIs are really using probability to determine what word to put next. So you kind of reverse engineer and it puts a highlight of like green color over the most predictable word. So if you see an essay and it's all the most absolutely predictable next word, then you know, oh, okay, that was produced by AI. But 
I'm thinking the problem of students submitting fraudulently uh, AI-produced papers, it points to a more fundamental issue with how we do education. Instead of entering into a technological arms race against cheating students, I think we need to shift our approach to achievement and assessment. I mean, many professors I know who were educated in Europe, they never encountered a Scantron answer sheet before coming to the United States. For them, an essay submitted by a student is not the culmination of a semester's work, but the starting place for a conversation. Our model of education with students taking tests and writing essays to prove their competency in order to get a passing grade and then credit toward a degree is itself a one-size-fits-all artifact of the industrial age. I understand why we might want to give competency exams to paramedics or cab drivers before entrusting them with our lives, but a liberal arts education, it's not a license to practice. It's an invitation to engage with ideas and culture and history. I mean, that's a hard culture to engender, with 50 or more students in a seminar or 100 in a lecture, particularly when many colleges can no longer afford teaching assistants or grad students to help read papers. It's even harder when students are showing up more for the credit than the learning. But the only truly workable response to a student population that has turned to AI to produce its papers is to retrieve the time-consuming face-to-face interaction that, for me anyway, constituted the most memorable moments of my education. Yes, I'm talking about live conversations with students about their ideas, their perspectives on what they've read, or even their responses to my questions about their work. In some sense, we can see the way students have resorted to AI-produced essays as an entirely utilitarian response to an educational culture that has become far too utilitarian itself. If we want our students to bring their human selves to the table, we have to create an educational environment that engenders human engagement. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
Was Human by the band Formidable Vegetable. You can find more of their stuff on formidablevegetable.bandcamp.com. We will hear another track from this Fremantle, Australia band at the end of the show. I love having guests on who are people I simply want to talk to. <laughs> They should all be, right? Maybe they are. I I met Jeff Emmett, who's definitely one of those people, just a few weeks ago at one of Amber Case's notorious cyborg camps. And it was an intersection that just needed to happen at that moment in my life. Jeff is a systems theorist, mathematician, tokenomics dude, and governance expert, but he's also a mycopunk, someone who is thinking deeply about the way mycelia live, share, and adapt, as well as what we humans may be able to learn from them. I was delighted he agreed to have this conversation in front of y'all. So here's my new friend, Jeff Emmett. I want to cut to the chase because I could go on forever with you. So I met you, Jeff Emmett, at at least the first time I was very conscious of meeting you was at the great, great Amber Case's uh, 
God know what, 10th or 20th cyborg camp up in Albany at the great Zargon's house. He's a, a, a terrific kind of systems theorist, mathematician who can apply it to everything in genius ways. And I was going there largely uh, to be convinced that crypto isn't all bad, that there's still a community looking at blockchains and decentralized tech and positive, wonderful pro-human ways. And so it was this little kind of even unconferency unconference, an unconference that makes a a regular unconference look hierarchical by comparison. And in the last slot on the last in the in the last evening, there was a session that you convened called Mycopunk, right? That was about Myco stuff, which we'll talk about. And it was this wonderful thing. And I was like, yay, mushrooms, yay. They're great in all these ways that we'll talk about. They can like save the world and model new things and build buildings and help people and cure cancer and make us smart and get to space and communicate with each other and model new forms of being and all this. But then I go home and people, I'm talking about mushrooms and I want to write my own mycopunk you know, graphic novel. I've got all these ideas that we'll talk about. And people say, oh, if you're interested in that and all that, you got to watch this Netflix show, not the Paul Stamets documentary that I saw, which is great that we should talk about, but this Netflix show called The Last of Us. Mm. Right, which is a zombie future show, and it's got all the same things about mushrooms that they can hear and talk to each other and be in a network and be throughout the history of time and the past and the future and all that. And they can go inside, you know, ants and stuff and control them and pop out of the top of their heads and spread their pollen. But in this one, because of climate change, they were able now to grow this kind of mushroom that does that bad stuff inside people. And it was turning the people into mushroom zombies and they were just biting in other people and were horrible. So <laughs> I didn't like that one bit. So here's the thing. Mushrooms do all this cool stuff that we'll talk about. How do we know? And I know this sounds like one of Jordan Peterson's bad trips that he talks about on like Rebel Wisdom, but you know that, oh no, mushrooms are an alien virus that are coming to take over the planet. And how do we, how, why is it that you and I actually feel like the contributions and the things that mushrooms do and, and teach us other animals is like benevolent? Good question. Uh, actually, and I, I think there's, <laughs> uh, and I think that the question, that question always comes down to like benevolent and harmful to who, if the earth as a cooled magma rock was the status that the earth wanted to stay in, um, then the earth might've been resentful of fungi and lichens for, for terraforming it, um, because they were actually some of the first uh, multi-celled life forms were were fungi, um, so the first eukaryote, um, and of course, a lot of this is is um, hypothesis as well. These things happened billions of years ago, but essentially, the first life forms that crawled out of the oceans were fungi, plant symbiotes called lichens, and lichens basically digested rock for again millions of years until soils formed and plants could take root and animals could eat plants and live off them. So ultimately, you know, if we go down the sort of chain of life on earth far enough, we come to fungi. And there is also theories that fungi may have come from other planets through asteroids or, or whatnot, the, the panspermia hypothesis, because another interesting about thing about uh, lichens and fungi and these life forms is they, they may be able to survive in 
uh, the ravages of space to cosmic rays and and extreme cold. Um, so there are possibilities that these things came from other planets and sort of terraformed uh, this planet to be able to support the life that it does have. So, so is it possible that that we we had life, or that you're thinking that the Earth might have been totally barren and then lichen came? and started life or that lichen came and sort of assisted life? Yeah. So the panspermia hypothesis is that there are, there were, and I mean, there's, there's much more detail on this, I'm sure um, that that could be looked up, but um, that these initial life forms, unicellular, multicellular organisms came on uh, an asteroid, which impacted the planet and then uh, was further colonized. So this has been popularized in, in Star Trek. There's actually a character in one of the Star Trek uh, seasons named Paul Stamets. And what they have is basically a, a mycelium gun. And they go around to planets that they've identified could support life, but currently don't. And they, they shoot this mycelium gun into the planet and basically inoculate the planet with uh, mycelium, which can then create soils, which can then create plants, which can then support animal life and and the evolution of uh, higher complexity life forms. So it's interesting to consider from from the point of view of those life forms that come down the chain. Um, you would probably say that that mushrooms uh, and mycelia are beneficial, but of course they do also kind of push the status quo or the norms into new. Um, states. So is it beneficial that there is, um, you know, one of the largest organisms on the planet is the armillaria mushroom um, and it's, and it's parasitic. So it's killing the forest that it's in. It's, it's doing different things to the ecosystem. Some you might say damaging, some you might say beneficial. So it, I think it really depends. So this thing is a big mushroom or is it like a big squishy like slime moldy thing? Uh, it is a it is a mycelial network, so it's underground, and it's it's uh, the mycelial network is actually kind of the organism. Uh, mushrooms are really just the fruit of the organism, so they're like the apple on the tree. But generally, when we when we talk about the organism, we're talking about the tree. Uh, and with my with mushrooms, it's the mycelial network underground. So there's this one big thing, this giant yes. spider webby thing, exactly under the ground in a particular forest. Where in like Europe or somewhere? I think it's in Oregon, actually, and it's and it's several square miles. Um, and of course, these mycelial networks are very dense as well. So there are probably hundreds of thousands of miles of of actual like single cell, you know, networks. Right. Um, these mycelial networks, right? They but grow out like that. I remember exactly. in the movie, they grow out like one cell at a time. So it's a single mm-hmm. cell string, like a little fiber optic cable of. But there's a lot of them, right? right. So one string can go and and. The other ones will be fine. So it's exactly. this forest and it's throughout the forest. And depending on how we look at it, it's either this great transformative thing or it's a parasite killing the thing. Right. And and uh, actually mushrooms play an interesting role in the sort of the the transitory. So when, when things die, but before things are reborn, you always find mushrooms. Um, and I mean, when, uh-huh. when, when we die, when, when things mold, when things rot, these are this is mushrooms breaking down the nutrients that are no longer being used by a dead organism and then making them available again for new life to grow, whether those are uh, plants, trees, you know, other food sources within the ecosystem. So my stuff, when I die, might go into a, a tree or a plant, not just a, a maggot that turns into a fly. Right. Yes, exactly. Well, that's a little nice. I mean, I you know flies are probably more advanced on some level, but I like the <laughs> idea of being incorporated into some trees than just flying around as for sure. Well, bugs. this is this is the whole <laughs> um, 
uh, basis behind the Avatar movies, this this idea of connecting in with with Awa and the planetary consciousness, all of our memories, all of our ancestry, a lot of that was actually modeled after mycelial networks and sort of our our evolutionary history. Actually, you know, mammals evolved from the fungi kingdom. So we actually share more of our lineage with with mushrooms than we do with, for example, plants or, or trees. Um, so there's there's some interesting sort of evolutionary similarities. You know, we can we can synthesize penicillin, for example, from mushrooms and then use it to treat bacterial infections in our bodies. They they actually synthesize it to fight bacteria under the soil. And we can right. reuse that to fight bacteria in our bodies. So we actually share a lot of this sort of common heritage with mycelial networks. And um, yeah, really interesting to consider. And in that sense, there's kind of, oh, mushrooms serve an example. Oh, here's dudes. Here's how you fight bacteria, right? Just try some of this and and see what it does. I mean, and that's sort of um, us learning from it. But there's even some evidence that mushrooms were the ones who taught plants how to make roots, like that mushrooms knew how to do this stringy thing under the ground. And there are these trees that are trying to live on ground. And the mushrooms are like, dudes, all right, let's kind of infect you for long enough to show you go like this. Go right. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting to consider the, the similar structure in um, neuronal growth in the human brain, very similar network structure. Um, neurons connect similar to, to mycelial <laughs> networks and really got to, got to wonder where sort of that, that, instruction came from also the the beneficial impacts on neurogenesis that mushrooms have when when we take them they in- increase neuronal regrowth and neuroplasticity which is really quite interesting yeah i mean and there's a great scene in the movie about paul stamets where um you know they found out that certain mushrooms work really help chemotherapy work mm-hmm. and um his mother calls him and says i have cancer and the doctors want me to take mushrooms and i told the doctor oh my son supplies those mushrooms to you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it ended up, you know, at least she believes and he believes and the doctors believe, you know, saving her life and that it excel- so vastly accelerated the um, ability of the body to learn the new patterns that, that could kill the cancers. But in that case, you know, if, if you want to think of it, then mushroom is one of their strategies for colonization isn't just the main thing they do, which we see is they go on the dead thing and Basically, they can digest any carbon thing. They can digest, I mean, for millions of years, they digested rocks, right? And they turn mm-hmm. rocks into soil that could grow other things. Then they can digest like dead trees and turn it back into nutrients that grow other things. They could do all that, right? So they're digesting and teaching. But then when they go into us, at least certain kinds of mushrooms, like a psilocybin mushroom or some kind of, you know, you know, hippie or shaman or psychedelic person's mushroom, you're taking this thing in you that's then teaching your brain something, right? And our brains seem to have little receptors that at least at first glance, they appear to be like waiting for this particular molecule to come along. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting because a lot of the medicines we take have a very targeted pathway that they that they affect you know if you have a headache you take a Tylenol it fixes your headache the interesting thing with mushrooms is there's not necessarily a, a single targeted action that it takes they call them adaptogens hmm. um, so they actually learn and teach 
our immune system in the case of um, cancer. And there's there's a lot of results. I just read a paper the other day that strongly recommended them as a adjunct therapy. So it's saying, you know, take it all alongside your normal, you know, whether it's chemo, radiation therapy, et cetera. But they're finding that a lot of these mushrooms have an interesting sense and respond opportunity. And this makes sense because they really are the nature's best learners. They learn how to digest. They don't, they didn't always know how to, for example, digest rock or, or even trees. Actually, uh, Merlin Sheldrake has in his book, Entangled Life. And that's Rupert Sheldrake's son, right? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're on the West coast of Canada and, and his book, Entangled Life is fantastic. And he theorizes that the, the fossil fuel deposits that we found only in a certain period, evolutionary period, you know, fossil fuels don't go all the way to the crust. They're, they're a certain depth down. And this was correlated roughly to a period where mushrooms didn't yet know how to digest all of these plants or, or animals. And it was a, a period of all of this stuff piling up and basically getting compressed into fossil fuels huh. over time. But we don't see those later because mushrooms probably just figured out how to digest that matter. So we, we didn't have. Wow. So our fuel deposits that we're depending on for the carbon-based fuel industry are basically a long period of mushrooms trying to figure something out. Right. And once <laughs> they did, then it's like it's gone. So it was basically there. We are consuming their ignorance right. at that point, right? which is kind of funny. But the weird thing is with mushrooms then – they're both, you know, teachers and colonizers. And I mean, you could you could argue what's the difference. I mean, I have students mm -hmm. who will accuse me just for the act of teaching. I am part of the white male hegemonic, right. you know, you know, cultural appropriation, right? If you're teaching somebody math, then you're taking whatever their brain was doing and saying, no, learn this Cartesian thing or learn calculus, learn this. So I get that there's no way around me just speaking to you is colonizing your brain. And it's, right. you know, sorry, but Mushrooms have this dual, you can look at them. It's sort of a Grateful dead thing. It's a, it's a dichotomy. You know, it's like, it's great, but it's that. It's this, but it's a fungus that's eating me at the same time. <laughs> I don't want athlete's foot or jock itch or something. You know, it's like, wait a minute. So you eat the mushroom and you can get the message of like, oh man, the planet is connected and all is one and God is this. But you could also, and then maybe you'll decide, oh, so I'm going to join Extinction Rebellion or Sunrise Movement and start saving the planet. So the mushrooms have now enlisted me in saving the planet for them and for us and for everyone. And that's all good. Yeah. Or you go to that sort of darker, scarier Jordan Peterson, you know, frightened white male tech bro side of things. And it's like, wait a minute, these things are colonizing me. They're usurping my free will as a technologized separate white male and dragging me back into these, you know, nature myths or alien agendas and I'm going to fight it. Or you get, finally you push through like a real tech bro can, like a Peter Thiel can and go, ah, and I will now harness the power of this colonization and create a multi-trillion dollar patented big pharma empire out of, uh, out of uh, psilocybin analogs. So it's, for me, it's very squirrely. I'm confused. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the <laughs> things that I find most interesting about mushrooms is that they embrace duality. Um, and this is something that I think some are better than others. But I mean, with the the advent of, of Christianity, you actually saw, you know, this, this obsession with purity and with goodness 
and this pushing away of the other, and we can call the other whatever, you know, whether it's the devil or it's, you know, paganism or it's the old ways. Women. (laughs) Right, right. right. And and all of those are actually quite innately linked. And it's it's interesting. Actually, one of the books I would highly recommend for any aspiring mycopunks is The Flowering Wand by Sophie Strand. Hmm. And she does an amazing job kind of inverting our default assumptions about, you know, good and evil. She looks at sort of the you know, even the symbolism around the devil, it's a, it's a horned being, it has bat wings, it has a snake tail, all of these things are very closely tied to nature. Mm. And a lot of that was basically, you know, the evolution of our natural rituals, whether it was, you know, solstice, and the the celebration of nature, the celebration of these cycles, the celebration of the feminine, you know, we had a lot of matriarchal societies. And then we saw this shift to strong, dominant patriarchal societies, and a lot of this sort of purity and goodness over evil. And I think we we forgot that these things are two sides of the same coin. And that's really what mushrooms bring back to the fore is that there's not a unipolar universe of goodness. There is um, life and there also is death and decay. And both of those are innately linked and actually linked through mushrooms in, in a lot of cases. So there's some interesting dualities that, you know, the, the, the teacher versus the colonizer, you know, there's the speculator versus the risk trader. All of these things are sort of on the same spectrum. Where is, where is good? Where is bad? Where is healthy? Where is unhealthy? But a lot of things are, are much more interconnected than we think. And I think mushrooms do a, a good job teaching us that as well. And I guess to be a mycopunk is to be someone who recognizes that. I mean, I decided I was a mycopunk when I heard the word before I even knew what it meant, just because it was like, that just, uh, I know I'm a punk because I was a cyberpunk and a punk rocker and punk everything else and just a punk in general. And then myco, I knew what that was. So I was like, well, I'll just be that. So even before your little meeting started, I was like on board and ready to commit my life to the mycopunk ethos. But as far as you've developed, I mean, did you come up with the word mycopunk or did you see it elsewhere? I mean, I it popped into my head one day. <laughs> Actually, I was I was seeing a discussion on like solar punk versus lunar punk. So I mean, you you know the evolution right. of these. It came went from, you know, steampunk, cypherpunk, cyberpunks, um, solar punk, lunar punk. There's there's a punk for everything these days. And none of them really uh, landed with me. And I think the solar punk was one of the more interesting. But then I, when I read Sophie Strand's The Flowering Wand, and she talked a lot about solar gods. And solar gods are kind of this you know, they come from the sky, they come from abstraction, they don't come rooted in the ground, they come from the sky, and they decree, and they strike you down, you know, there's all sorts of like, dominant patriarchal sort of uh, imagery around this. It's a it's a one directional relationship that we have with the sun, it gives we receive, it doesn't receive anything from us. So that it lacks this sort of um, well, reciprocality. If we worship it, you know, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it might not hear. Yeah. So, so this is where mycopunk was really interesting to me because I, yeah. I think we have this fantastic teacher that we often don't see. Most of it's hidden. Most of us ignore it. Most of us, you know, we think mushrooms are this weird kind of side thing, but actually, they they are foundational to not only, you know, life on earth, but also most of the things we enjoy, you know, wine, beer, cheese, anything involving fermentation, all mushroom based or or fungus based, I should say. And I mean, yeast is a form of fungus, slime mold is a form of fungus. It's actually one of the most intelligent, adaptive 
forms of life on this planet. And most people, you know, just don't, don't think much about it. So I think we have a lot to learn from this, from this life form. And although it speaks in a different language, it's done a lot of amazing things over the course of, of this, the history of this planet. And I, I think if we can learn to align our human economies with natural economies, we may not run ourselves off the cliff. Right. That's sort of the ultimate goal, at least in, in my work in, in the crypto and Web3 space. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing I'm finding now, and I guess the reason I'm excited about what you're doing is it it reminds me of my own early digital days, late 80s, early 90s. It was my psychedelic friends from college who ended up going to Silicon Valley and working in the computer companies and doing fractals and all that. And I was like, wait, this seemed odd to me. But what it was, was people who had had sort of psychedelic experiences understood, sort of intuitively understood networking and connections between things. They were less frightened by the uh, uh, potentials of networking or social networking or even potential loss of privacy. And they were less frightened to build things like second life, you know, realms in which human beings would be would be moving because they had already hallucinated realities, right? So they were not afraid to hallucinate a place that we would live. And then that, you know, got all commercialized, whatever. Most of those people disappeared or got rich or, you know, fell off the planet or did whatever they did. But it didn't, it no longer seems to be the the dominant uh cultural or ethical ethos of Silicon Valley, say. They they're up to other things. But then when when I talk to you and other mycopunks about mycelia, we see something like, you know, you read a book like, and I've quoted this book a lot, Secret Life of Trees. And in there, she explains how, no, the big tree is not stealing sunlight from the little tree. The big tree is sharing its nutrients from the sun with the little tree through a mycelium network that acts like this big internet. So the baby tree can call to its mother tree and go, mommy, not enough sun, I'm going to die. And the, the mother can go, it's okay, baby, it's okay. And send not only her message, but the actual photosynthesized juice or whatever she has with the baby under there. And then the baby tree later, if it, or an evergreen tree can go, dude, you look dry up there. Do you need some green? I got it right through the winter. Have some, have some. And the mycelium so smart. They'll take even a serve. They're like, uh, well, I won't even get into it, but they're, they're like the uh, sort of the intermediary traders here, you know, getting a service fee and helping themselves keep going. Right. And teaching and so the mutual aid wouldn't be there were it not for the mushroom allowing it. But moreover, the mushrooms, once you see the mushrooms, you no longer have to think about some magical, spiritual, energetic connection between mother tree and baby tree. Right? No, it's a physical, real, cellular, actual, molecular phenomenon. You don't, so yes, Richard Dawkins, the two trees are connected in a way that I can't explain to you in the moment, but now- this is what was going on. And so once we have evidence that things are connected, that we intuited were connected but didn't have evidence, then we could start – and I don't mean to be totally weird. We could start uh, – if not uh, – I don't want to say believing in stuff. We can start hypothesizing about uh, an interconnections that are not yet plainly visible to us because we don't yet know how to see them. Absolutely. And, and you have to wonder about sort of the higher order – 
sort of intelligences and and how those come to be. You know, we we as humans we think of ourselves as an individual identity, but if you actually delve into the human brain, there's no neuron that we identify that is me, you know, or the head neuron. It's it's a distributed network, but that distributed network of electrical impulses gives rise to an intelligence that can differentiate itself from those impulses and set and walks around saying, hi, I'm Jeff and not, you know, <laughs> hi, I'm a, a network of neurons right. in a bag of meat that's, that's now animated moving around. And, you know, if you look at the number of network interconnections in, in a mycelial mat and, you know, on a planetary scale compared to the number of neurons in a, in a human brain, you've got to wonder what the, you know, we, we talk about this Gaia intelligence or, you know, mother Gaia and actually, you know, coming back to, to avatar, this was the inspiration that they drew from the, the mycelial networks is what kind of higher level consciousness can, you know, can result when you interconnect an organism like that. It, it's really interesting to consider how that all fractalizes up. You know, we aren't just 10 trillion cells. We are 10 trillion cells that can think of itself and conceive of itself as independent of or, or composed of those cells. And what, what do mushrooms think of themselves? What do mushrooms think of us, you know, cleaning up after us? They're, they're constantly doing that and have been for for the entire history of the planet, pretty much. Right. And we might even be able to put them to work cleaning up after us. I mean, hopefully in ways that they'll enjoy. But, you know, you throw, <laughs> as, as as I think you showed in this little slide presentation, you, you throw some uh, mushrooms on an oil spill, or the right ones, and they fix it. They, like, turn it into a friggin' ocean oasis of plants and things, right? Right. Yeah, they can they can break down hydrocarbons. So so anything that came from the earth can be broken down and, you know, turned into I think that was an experiment Paul Stamets did with a number of sort of oil soaked uh, piles. They, they did a few controls and uh, they used oyster mushrooms and they found that the pile with the oyster mushrooms, not only were the hydrocarbons broken down and mushrooms grew, but birds came to eat the mushrooms and <laughs> drop seeds and then plants grew because the, you know, the, the whole process of uh ecological succession had kicked in, which is, which is really important. Yeah. So it's interesting though, that maybe the way through is not some, you know, crazy Monsanto, you know, thing, but some already existing little lichen or mushroom or something that we spill around. I mean, the, the, the beauty of, of examples like that is it gives me hope that we're not on a, on a unidirectional trajectory towards doom, that there are these little kind of elbow moments, you know, that are often, you know, spawned by, by little fungi that create huge system-wide, I mean, get back to systems theory, huge system-wide effects really rapidly if they leverage the sort of, if they leverage networks and systems rather than just try to make a stand, you know, <laughs> right? You know, the, the, the impulse is, you know, I'm going to put a boundary around this thing and, you know, cordon in this little forest and then fix it right there. And it's like, oh, no, no, open it up. You know, there's this, so maybe, you know, we'll sprinkle some mushrooms there, sprinkle some mushrooms in, in our children's cereal or whatever, but <laughs> wherever it has to be, you know, to engender the kind of consciousness or, and healing that'll get us through this thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, in, environmental restoration, I think also, you know, social psychological healing. Mm. It's interesting that, you know, every, indigenous group and and I haven't actually confirmed this but I I did hear it the other day from from Joe Brewer saying that every indigenous group had some form of ritual you know community building ritual built around psychedelics and they're 
it's interesting how our modern cultures have kind of stepped away from that. But we still have amazing numbers of rituals in our society that are based on those. Actually, most of our Christmas traditions are actually based around the mushroom. I don't know if we've, we've talked about that before. The Amanita muscaria was, uh, is that red mushroom with white dots, one of the most famous mushrooms. And, and this was a big tradition in the, well, actually probably around the North Pole in, in the Arctic with the Sami people where they would dress up in red and white. The shamans would dress up in red and white and they would go and harvest the mushrooms and they would dry them out on the boughs of, of pine trees. Mm-hmm. So this is where we got Christmas tree decorations from was the drying out of mushrooms. Then the shaman would take those mushrooms and bring them to the village and they would go and visit different huts. But of course, they're in the Arctic Circle. So the there was a ton of snow. So you would have to enter the Sami huts through the chimney. And they would give gifts to the villagers of, of mushrooms or pieces of the mushroom, which they would then dry out by the fire in socks. And then they would have these mushrooms and have, have visions. Sometimes that was what they shared with villagers as well. And oddly enough, one of the ways you can process Amanita muscaria mushrooms, because they, they cause quite some tummy trouble, as far as I understand, mm. on top of the, the visions and the, the psychedelics that they, um, the hallucinations that they incur. So a lot of the ways that they would ingest them is actually having a reindeer eat it and then drinking the urine of the reindeer. So this whole flying reindeer, you know, the visions or the hallucinations that may have, you know, tied in with a sleigh and and flying reindeer. It's all really interesting how a lot of that came from actually psychedelic ritual in around the winter solstice. Right. The trick is that when you have it with a real ritual, I mean, real, I mean, uh, at least a, an old ritual that's been passed on from elders to youngers, there, there'll usually be some of the culture's wisdom embedded in it, you know, where when you get, God bless them, and I was there, when you get a bunch of kids getting together with E and 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 electronic dance music and just saying, let's just gather and do this, it's it's nice and all that, but it lacks the same sorts of cultural traction and learning because there's there there aren't, and I don't even mean Rupert Sheldrake morphogenetic fields of thousands of years of use, but it's not part of a tradition. Uh, maybe it's a, a, going to start one, but it's not part of a tradition of learning. It tends to be kids just getting high, you know, and, and having a peak experience, which I'm sure is good for trauma and other things, but it doesn't quite engender the kind of sorts of cultural shifts and learning that are required of us right now. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I'm encouraged to see the sort of direction that legalized psychedelics are making. And I think it's interesting in, in some of the first places like, uh, Oregon, I believe, uh, where it's, where it's legalized, there is a large emphasis on doing it within sort of and I mean, it's often clinical, you know, it's, it's Western medicine, but I think that's also a, a healthy way to approach these, you know, psychedelic psychotherapy. There's, there's a lot of unexplored territory since all of this was kind of made very taboo in, in the 60s and 70s with the war on drugs. Um, but they were seeing some incredibly effective and also non-repeating. So with three doses, for example, of three macro doses of psilocybin or, or LSD or even MDMA, which can, can all actually be fungally derived, so not unnatural compounds, let's say, it's, it's really interesting the permanent effects that that can have on depression, anxiety, and a number of other psychological issues that, that I think 
are really promising, but also hard to monetize. You know, if you are a, a pharmaceutical company, you don't want to sell a pill that they take three times and then they're cured. You want to sell a pill that they have to take every week for the rest of their life right. because that's your revenue stream. So there's something fundamentally at odds between, you know, capitalism and and some of these natural medicines that I think we we really need to figure out and explore further. Yeah. You'd have to do one of those sort of landmark uh, Tony Robbins sorts of things where it's like, okay, you've had your psychedelic experience now. In order for it to really matter, you need to enlist four other people to have, <laughs> you know, yeah. in your psychedelic experience. And if you don't, it means that you don't really believe. You know, they've <laughs> got to come up with some MLM, right? Or you get, once you have your, your 40 hours of psychedelic experience, then you're certified to leave your own <laughs> shamanic sessions and you get, you know, four four stars or whatever. It's, you know, the way the yoga teachers do it. You know, oh, I've got my 2000 hour training. So now I could do a teacher training, you know, workshop, yeah. blah, blah. <laughs> like, okay. You know, but the other trick with it though, I mean, it, it, the monetization thing is interesting. And the way that some people are trying to monetize it is by putting patents on the chemicals and finding out ways to make, you know, psilocybin a little bit less effective. Mm -hmm. You know, are there versions of microdosing that we could do that just keep people going and we could charge a whole, you know, $10 a day instead mm -hmm. of, you know, $20 <laughs> once? You know, there's that. But then there's also the danger, more like what my, my friends at Symposia are uncovering, which is that because mushrooms are such, have such a high potential for cognitive colonization. It's very tempting for somebody to say, oh, here you go, pretty girl or pretty boy, take these mushrooms and then discover, you know, my, some of my, my, my pranic discharge, you know, <laughs> will give you truth. I mean, and there's a lot of manipulation and it's, I'm sure it happens. And I've, I always hear, you know, there's dentists that, molest people while they're under anesthesia and there's psychologists that end up dating their patients and it happens. But with, with psychedelics, it feels so much because of the, the length of time a person is imprinted by one of these experiences, it feels almost like we need even more, oddly enough, more regulation and care around the use of these chemicals than regular therapy or counseling. Right. Which I hate to say, you know, because because mm -hmm. for you and me, I mean, if we've had psychedelic experiences, they've been illegal, right? Mm -hmm. We did them. I mean, in some in some, some cases, though, the fact that they were illegal forced us to do it with truly trusted friends, with friends that you trusted not to be narcs or turn you in and who you trusted enough psychologically that, yeah, I mean, it means a lot. I could trip with this person in some ways means more than I could have sex with this person. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> mm -hmm, it's in mm -hmm. many ways, it's, it's more dangerous and more intimate. Yeah. Or can be. There, there's a lot to unpack there. I think, you know, number one, the, the hubris that, you know, governments have to say, you know, making a species illegal <laughs> is just quite crazy yeah. from the get go. You know, this grows in the ground and it's illegal that it just doesn't doesn't make sense. Right. Unless it's some bizarrely invasive species that's going to kill every everything else in your neighborhood it, still. Right. And, you know, going, going on to um, the ability for misuse or, or, or grooming of people. Yes, definitely. When, when people are in psychedelic hallucinations, they're very vulnerable and impressionable. Absolutely. But I think if you wanted to do bad things to someone, there are a lot of other substances that would get you 
what you're looking for much more effectively. Trying to get someone, you know, hallucinating and then and then doing, you know, X, Y, Z or or anything really in the in the normal world is can be quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> right. That said, not to say that these things aren't misused. Actually, I read a, a Twitter thread the other day about the use of psychedelics in cults. Yeah. And you know, what, actually, what we were talking about earlier started verging on you know a psychedelic cult, right? How do we get more people to try it, or how do you you know colonize more minds? So I think there's there's of course a balance to be struck there as always, and doing it properly, doing it with I mean, plant medicines have established lineage in indigenous cultures, and you know, going back to um, uh, Maria Sabina, you know, the original. I don't know if you would call her a Quandera, but you know, I think it was in the 60s when the Western world started discovering hallucinogenic mushrooms, and it was really hard for Westerners to get into a traditional indigenous ceremony. And when they did, you know, the, the I think it got published in Time magazine, and then all of a sudden there was this explosion of interest of Westerners into these practices and and rituals. Uh, and of course, it got into the mainstream through Timothy Leary and and a lot of these other early psychonauts, and and became you know, much more disconnected from these traditional rituals and, and rites that sort of grounded them in the wisdom of the elders and sort of the, the safe traditional way of, of doing these substances. So I, I think there's a lot to learn doing these things as, as a party favor. Um, I mean, it might be fun and that's probably how people dip their toes. A lot of people are first introduced to these substances that way, but I think that's also part of the shame of of making them illegal that they're you know not available except through these alternative routes and i i think if we approach them more holistically as a society then maybe we wouldn't push people to the margins where they can be used for for more nefarious or or less substantive purposes than would have been traditional in indigenous societies well it's interesting though it's like if you imagine if there were a way to do alcohol that was transformative you know, could you have both? You could have, okay, so there's some people who are just going to drink some beer, have wine at dinner and do it the light way. And then there's other people who take, you know, the rub the alcohol in their temples or do whatever the other form of that drug is. And, oh, look, they're just tripping out. They're, you know, they're <laughs> with their shaman and experiencing other dimensions. It's like, it's interesting that there's not, I guess there's microdosing that a lot of people are doing with mushrooms just to feel a little better or smarter or whatever it is that they're kind of calmer, less anxious that they're getting out of it. That's a fundamentally, what's seemingly fundamentally different experience from tripping your balls off. You know, yeah. it's, it's, but I guess there's a spectrum. I guess if you really, really understood the drugs, you'd go, oh no, you know, some great shaman would say, oh no, it's the same thing. It's just, you know, a different from something else. But, but beyond the now obvious use of certain mushrooms in psychological change or cultural change or spiritual change. I mean, that's just sort of the easiest metaphor to grok for all the other ways that mushrooms could transform energy use, the way we think about things decaying, the the even the fossil record, the history, the idea that mushrooms remember all the species that happened, that they've eaten and broken down things. They because once they've broken something down, they know then later, oh, this is that. It's sort of they, right. they develop a memory and immune. So they, in theory, mushrooms have the whole record of everything that's ever happened here, even before us. They know human history. They know animal history. They know the evolution of, of all these things. They've got that you know, in them. 
which is which is you know remarkable in itself. But the the idea that even you say as a mathematician, could I call you that? In part, <laughs> a systems theorist, a, a digital person. Uh, <laughs> yeah, S- systems engineer, I suppose. I, yeah. I studied electrical engineering, but systems are are really sort of the, my current area of interest. And I think that's where mycelium fit in. Exactly. You're applying some of what you learned uh, making electrical systems now to systems of all kinds, right? And you can right. say, oh, look at this and that, this society and that society. There's a potential voltage between them. Right. And how do I reduce that gradient and all that? Right. All the same rules, don't, if they don't apply exactly, they're at least they rhyme. They rhyme, right? Yeah. So then when you see mushrooms, is there this learning that goes into that way of your thinking? Like, do you see systems and math and shit in there? Absolutely. I, I think mushrooms are nature's greatest arbitrageur. They see opportunities in unused resources and they learn how to, A, eat them, but the way they eat them is interesting. So when mammals broke off from uh, the fungi kingdom, mammals made a decision to digest food in their body. So we put food in our stomach and our stomach digests it. And all of the value from those nutrients is captured by our body. You know, the person standing next to me doesn't get any value from me digesting a Big Mac. But mushrooms are very different because they don't put food in their body. They put their body in the food. So when a peach decays (laughs) on the ground or an apple decays on the ground, the mushroom actually enters the apple and digests it. And all of those nutrients that it doesn't use are picked up by the ecosystem. So a tree can benefit from that or an, an animal could come by and eat the leaf off the tree, for example. So it's, it's building up sort of these positive sum loops in nature that with the mammalian way of digesting food is kind of internal. It's an external positive sum versus an internal digestion system. Well, so Because we're uh, individuals and they're not. Right, right exactly. So yeah, definitely interesting to consider what yeah. we can learn from them and not just, you know, we've talked a lot about the the psychological and psychedelic, but yeah, their their structure in general, they are the great redistribution network of nature. They connect with trees. They actually, even in the way they connect with trees, they entwine with the roots and then they produce the compounds that shut down the immune system of the tree because the tree has a response to things trying to connect with its roots. It, it, pushes them off. It doesn't want parasites. But the mushroom learns and it shuts down the immune response of the tree and then it connects with it and it trades nutrients and carbon and different things from the soil. And in return, it gets carbohydrates and whatnot from from photosynthesis and then spreads those through the network. So if we're looking at, you know, just sustainable societies, we need to figure out how to distribute resources so that everyone can survive. We don't have fascist uprisings. We don't have wars. We don't have, you know, these are all things that that push humans towards precarity. How do we push people right. towards, you know, symbiosis and proper resource sharing? I think we can learn a ton from mushrooms. Right. Which doesn't mean to say that we are mushrooms, right? We're not. We can learn things from mushrooms. We can learn balance from mushrooms. But, you know, when you were talking about mushrooms and the way they kind of become the thing rather than digest the thing, it started to make me think about, you know, the distinction I've always drawn between like figure and ground, that humans and trees and things and objects are figures and there's the ground. And we tend in Western society to to think of the figure and we lose sense of the ground, the environment that we're actually in, the, the medium which is, as McLuhan would say, the message. Mushrooms 
compared to us, we're like figure mushrooms are like ground, mm-hmm. right? They're like they and they're cool with that. Mm-hmm. They're just like, oh, we're ground, we're ground. And I wouldn't want, and I wouldn't think we would want to, you know, as humans, we still want there to be an Einstein and a Beethoven and a beautiful kid. And a, we still like that walk around and stand up and have a name and have an inside and digest and then poop. You know what I mean? We still <laughs> want that. It's <laughs> just that we may have balanced too far over on the, you know, individual, you know, whatever that is, that, that, that strident individual Western American, right. You know, uh, sovereign individual, and can learn, oh, no, there, there's also ground. There's this other way. Right. And I think a, a different way to phrase that is the the individual versus the collective. There are inherent tensions between the individual and the collective. And I, I say that in the sense, you know, we individually are not mushrooms. But actually, even individually, we are made up of trillions of cells. And more of those cells are not human than are human. <laughs> so first of all, there, we aren't these individual mono identities, but I'm interested in how this fractalizes up rather than down because it does go both directions. But if we look at sort of the the human collective as a network and the threads between us are, are possibly invisible or maybe they're underground, but we connect, we share, we learn, we grow, and we distribute and redistribute and pre-distribute. So I'm curious how we can learn from these organisms to think about the interconnection of the human species as a mycelial network or or as a greater than, not necessarily meaning better, but larger, and how we can overcome some of today's challenges. I think a lot of our challenges in society are favoring or people favoring the individual. How do I get mine and not grow ours? You know, there's a lot of this individualism that started with, you know, well, I'm sure there are multiple points in history, but even the the you know enlightenment, you know the the enlightened individual, and then going on into economics, we have this utility theory where everyone is a rational actor that is out to maximize their own personal utility, and this is how, this is the systems that we base our society on. Um, and I'm I'm really curious how we can come into healthier balance between the individual and the collective by understanding some of these structures and perhaps implementing them in our communities, in our economy and our technologies as well. Yeah, which is why, you know, uh, liberal artists and media theorists ended up coming up with better economic models than economists because we weren't using rational actor theory. Right. You know, so it was the the humanity side that came up with distributism and subsidiarity right. and, you know, platform cooperatives and the idea that a business doesn't need to grow larger than necessary to achieve its function. You know, it was the, the individualists that invented financialization and metafinancialization financialization and derivatives of derivatives of derivatives, which are just ways of extracting value from existing transactions rather than promoting anything. It's like imitating mushrooms without actually delivering anything but extraction, you know, which gets me to the last thing I'm kind of concerned about, which maybe this is too scatological for the team human audience. So trigger warnings, but Right. Mushrooms grew on little poop patties, right? Like cow patties. And the idea that, that, that 
Terrence McKenna and Paul Stamets and others have had is that like cave people were going around. It didn't really have language. We were just kind of more animal than people, but we're following around these cows because we, you know, would eat them or, you know, drink their milk or whatever we did. And the cows were pooping on the field and then mushrooms would grow out of them. We would eat the mushrooms and our brains would go, whoa. And we had a lot of sort of synesthesia experiences where the sounds become smells and smells become thoughts and this becomes that. And it was very conducive to developing a linguistic system because now a sound might be associated with an object. So, oh, there's a word and there's a thing. We became symbol systems. Our brains changed a whole lot right around then, either because we were eating it or whatever was happening. And we got got all smart and we turned into these sort of co-evolved with mushroom people, right? With language and all this stuff. Meanwhile, mushrooms are living with us and learning and breaking things down. And every time they break something down, they learn about it, right? That's what we were saying. They learn about rocks and learn about people. They learn about all of, and I was figuring that the mushrooms were learning about us largely from our poop, right? The stuff that we left behind, because we're just, back then we had no toilets, right? We just walked around and we pooped. So even if our poop wasn't growing the mushrooms that we ate, it's going back in the soil and becoming part of the thing. So the mushrooms figure out what they have to teach the humans based on what they read in our poop, right? They go, oh, they got language. That's good. Now let's give them some of this. Let's do some of that. <laughs> well, then we develop toilets and and Listerine or whatever we do and kill our poop before it gets anywhere, right? Stick it in blue poison, mm-hmm. whatever. And the mushrooms are just like thinking now, what happened to the humans? What, what are they... Where are they at? We don't know, except for like three people camping in the woods, right? It's like the mushrooms are just like, dude, we're not getting any feedback from you guys. Mm. We keep giving you. You can keep tripping on us. But if you want to trip on us, you got to at least poop in a field so we can we could get a Close little feedback, feedback loop. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's possible or, or, <laughs> or are, they, are they finding things out the way, in other ways? Good question. Good question. Yeah. When, you know, it's interesting to consider these reality bending in some cases organisms growing on on something as low as as a pile of poop but you know this is one of the things i like about mushrooms is they're humble you know they they don't care about what you think about something that's it's a resource that that is there and then is available yeah. yeah so so what you were just referencing was the the stoned ape hypothesis and there's again a theory and probably unprovable, but there was a period of evolutionary time in human history where our brains grew like four times as fast as the previous evolutionary period. I'd, I'd have to double check those stats, but yeah, it's it's really interesting to consider the, the sort of co-evolutionary effects that these may have had. And I mean, not just on humans either. Mushrooms, you know, they, they release spores in such prodigious amounts that they're one of the largest drivers of cloud formation. So it's interesting because mushrooms grow in moist conditions and they release so many spores. There are more spores in the atmosphere than possibly any other particulate matter. And those spores are actually also, I don't know if they're sugar-based or if they have sugar attached to them. So they really encourage the formation of clouds and rain. So they may be terraforming our entire ecosystem or, or I mean, have been for millions and billions of years. Um, and it goes beyond just, you know, directly interacting with other species, but also with the environment itself. So it's pretty incredible what these organisms are capable of and how much of that is, you know, 
premeditated, you know, <laughs> as opposed to just a systemic effect, who knows? But it's really interesting how they impact so much on a global scale. I know. It's like how much of that is, is premeditated or not gets to the fundamental question of the whole darn thing. It's like how mm-hmm. much of us, you know, we always ask nature or nurture, what's inevitable? Is there free will? You know, how much of that you can't, I don't think we can know for ourselves any more or less than we can know for a, um, there's a great uh, Alan Watts passage where he's watching like dandelion leaf, you know, fly around in the sky. And he's like, how much of that is the will of the dandelion to fly in that way? And it's Mm -hmm. like, because of the way, even though it seems passive to us, it's the way it was shaped that Mm -hmm. leads to this. So you're stuck. But when you get into that quandary and kind of let go of it, that's like the profound lesson. That's when, oh, I don't care if I'm figure or ground. I'm both and neither. I don't mm-hmm. care if I'm willful or passive. I'm both and neither. Try making love. What's going on there, right? <laughs> I mean, really doing it? Are you in charge? Are you not? Are you inside? Are you outside? Who's in what and where? It's like that place is like the div- that's the divine ecstasy of you know, of being alive, being on shrooms, being figure and ground, you know, connecting with another human being. It's just like, oh, whose idea was that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and I think that's, that's the, the mycopunk future. Right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, and that's the exciting thing about applying those. I like how you said that the shape of the dandelion seed, for example. And I, I think we can design other shapes, you know, we can design gradients. And you see this in the natural world, right? People, build cities in the valley, not on top of the mountain. Why? Because, you know, it's hard to get all of those materials up the mountain. Sure, some people have done it, but there are more cities in valleys than there are on top of mountains. And, you know, we we also have invisible shapes to our economic systems, for example. And if you look at it from a systemic point of view, if you look at, you know, where the flows go, when you see this, you know, basically this this vacuuming of wealth from the bottom to the top and then a hoarding of wealth where four or six people have as much wealth as you know 50% of the planet it's like okay that systemically is unsustainable so how can we design shapes that allow humans to interact however they want to that creates a positive systemic output and i think we we now have these new tools that we can design new incentive gradients or interaction gradients and allow things to evolve naturally, just like the dandelion seed dances on the wind. Well, was it, is that intelligent? Okay. How much intelligence went into the shape of that to allow it to do that? So how do we start to create these natural flows that allow systemic flourishing and emergence as opposed to requiring people to, you know, think hard about doing good in the world. I think that's part of the problem. You know, everyone has to go out of their way to do good in the world. It's not baked into, you know, our economy. It's not baked into our day to day. And that's also by choice. So I think there's some really interesting opportunities to rethink some of these default modes of society and and how we can create more mutualism, more um, thriving into the future and solve some of these big challenges that currently face our species. And I guess to conclude, though, back where we started, I mean, you have some faith in, faith is maybe the wrong word, but you have some faith in our ability to use decentralized technologies and, uh, you know, what, what many of us have been calling blockchain 
things like that to model and orchestrate some of this um, more distributed uh, approach. Yeah. That they don't all have to be, you know, token rug pull things. Right. So most of what we've seen in, in the blockchain and crypto space so far has been, you know, scams. It's, it's the latest Wild West. A lot of it is just copy paste. They took Bitcoin, the code base, it's open source. And this is interesting as well. You know, the, actually, an article I came across a couple of years ago called Bitcoin is a Mushroom kind of got me started on this mm. frame of thought that, you know, open source in a way is information sharing on the internet. And the internet, if you look at it in a graph structure, actually looks quite similar to a mycelial network. So there's all sorts of structures in nature that that share this self-similar structure. And I think with smart contracts, we have a really interesting new way to connect people's inputs to executed action. You know, there's there's all sorts of citizens' assemblies that that come out with really great political ideas, but then they don't have any teeth. You know, there's there's a group of people that get together and say, hey, this would be best for our community or our state or whatnot. And then, you know, their proposal gets to the desk of the politician, who, of course, his incentives are entirely different than the mm. people on the ground, and says, oh, this isn't politically feasible and, and throws it out. So with smart contracts, we have a really interesting way to connect the will of the people to actually getting stuff done. I think this is a really interesting new tool where we can start to signal from the bottom up, just like mycelium does, you know, they sense make and problem solve at the edge of the network. They don't have to relay it back to the central hierarchy or their representative who then gets to make the decision to move forward or not. It's all local problem solving. And that's that really is subsidiarity. We need to push the decision making power back to the people on the ground who who know what the problem is and, and know, you know, how it can be addressed. And keeping all of the you know local stakeholders and and beneficiaries in mind so i think it yeah it really offers us a new opportunity to think past the sort of centralized control top down dominating hierarchy you know even the nation state i think is is a very much a a tool of oppression in a lot of cases and and granted people have you know fought back and gotten you know all sorts of public goods from from nation states which i think is is really important too there's there's kind of a dark libertarian side to, I'm not saying libertarians are dark necessarily, but there's a very individualistic profit oriented crowd in the blockchain space. But there are also a really healthy and interesting sort of commons movement in these DLT structures and and some of these projects like Holochain or the Common Stack or the, the Crypto Commons Association. There's, there's a number of groups that are experimenting with using these tools to bring back mutualism and subsidiarity. And yeah, I think there's a lot of promise there for sure. Yeah. Just for people to know that there are blockchain advocates who have a vocabulary that includes distributism, subsidiarity, and mutualism, I mean, is is as calming as a nice mycopunk evening. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to credit you, Jeff Emmett, on the record with the word mycopunk and the fact that my next graphic novel, it's currently called Hauntology, is my first work of explicitly mycopunk fiction. Cool. And uh, you are to be you are to be thanked. I mean, I had two elements in it. I had these kind of a solar punk future world and then this kind of tech bro, high tech people kind of trying to invade that world. And I wasn't sure what to do. But then I realized after hearing you, oh, the heroes of this story are the mycelia. Mm-hmm. And uh, they will be the heroes, although I'm going to also have to leave some room for them to be 
you know, the, as heroes, we may, we humans may end up having to be the villains in this story <laughs> if we don't, if we don't get our acts together. So it'll be, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it'll be interesting. So thank you. Thanks so much for the work you do. Can people become Mycopunks today? Is there a place they can go or soon? Definitely. I did put together a, a Git book of Mycopunk principles. I'll put the link in the, in the show notes to the Mycopunk principles, which um, you don't have to sign on to, but you can read. And <laughs> once you read them, they will colonize your thought structures. So it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I actually really like how Christina Bowen put it, where she was comparing Mycopunk to solar punk. And she said, to me, Mycopunk is more about the flow of resources than the creation of a new narrative, a doing rather than a showing or telling, and more of a happening you discover and join than a story you can help co-imagine. So I, I thought that was a really interesting take on Mycopunk and the, the flow that is sort of being tapped into here. So yeah, really, really <laughs> excited to see where it goes. I think it's a necessarily emergent genre of uh, punkhood. It's, yes. it's continually growing. And I, I don't think we we need to set it in stone because mushrooms wouldn't like that very much. <laughs> I, I love it. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot, Jeff Emmett, for being on Team Human. And it means a lot to us. My pleasure. I'm really eager to, to dive deeper into some of these topics with you. All right. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Doug. People say I'm a fun guy But that's more than what I am Well, you can call me fungus Come underground to my pad to jam There's not much room down there But we've got mycelium Fun gal come to me I'm gonna decompose you a love song Symbiosis in the key of G And when I party You know I love to break it down Eating dead wood tastes so good no, I'm gonna share it round Thank you for being on Team Human. That's Mycelia Around You by the band Formidable Vegetable. Our guest today was Michael Punk and token engineering researcher Jeff Emmett. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaptelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, along with Team Fungi, our last best hope for peeps.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.